Welcome to Amplify. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. Welcome to Amplified. So exciting. We are in the great city of Spokane near uh, Idaho, and we're doing the, we just finished the Energy Science Technology Conference, and I got to uh, experience some of the top minds in the world that are creating all kinds of lovely solutions. So I will be sharing that in next week when we bring a couple of those uh, guests on. And how are you doing, Andrea? Well, I'm doing wonderful, and congratulations for being able to showcase the new book, the release of The Science of Smiles, to such amazing minds. So congratulations on that. Yeah, this is my third year here, and I all the books I've done in the past have been certainly based on experience and what I've learned. But this was quite a new experience because I had to do research. So 90% of the book is just uh, really cool findings, and I, I guess I'll share one of them right now. Is uh, thanks for your help finding some of this research. But for those of you who are listening that are not in the best of moods, sometimes if you smile, what happens is your brain kicks off endorphins and you feel happy, and so you've just caused happiness in yourself, and it regenerates because the smile is telling the mind it's happy, and the mind is saying, "Hey, I'm happy," so smile. So it's really a great loop. So let's get right to business and bring Alex on. Can you uh, introduce the, our guest? Absolutely. I am so pleased to introduce Alex Mendozian. Since 1993, Alex Mendozian has generated nearly 450 415, let me repeat that, million in sales and profits for his marketing students, clients, and joint venture partners on six different continents. He's best known for teaching entrepreneurs from emerging nations, that's the third world countries, on how to buy their first home by applying his time-tested digital marketing strategies. Best-selling, Harvey, best-selling author Harvey McKay acknowledges Alex as a Warren Buffett of digital marketing because of his ability to make money for his students and joint venture partners. Alex has shared the stage with Richard Branson, Larry King, Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield, Marianne Williamson, Robert Kiyosaki, Susie Orman, Mikhail Gorbachev, the Dalai Lama, and two S presidents. So uh, Alex has been featured on NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, as well as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Success Magazine. I could take the entire hour with his accolades. He's also amazingly fun and great to see on stage and uh, a great friend. Alex, thank Thank you so much. Standing ovation for you for joining us today. Andrew and Ken, thank you. And as I listen to the introduction, I wish my mother could be hearing it because she still doesn't know what I do after 30 years of doing this. (laughs) (laughs) My whole family doesn't, Alex. And, you know, what's really cool is I know you're really excited that after this show, you're going to be able to add Amplified Voice America to that list. (laughs) Well, I can't wait. You'll, You'll add it for me. So I appreciate okay. you both for that. And and one one way to increase the dopamine is is not only to smile, but to look up and smile. So that's what I do if uh, I'm in a, a little bit of a um, a drudgy mode. I, I look up and I smile. It's hard not to be happy when you do that. Ah, you that's- go into Hakalau. <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah. I have been excited to see you at so many events, and most importantly, we uh, launched this Keep Smiling 100, where we're creating 
a hundred different books from a hundred different influencers that are causing positivity, smiles, solving problems, and even inspiring hope in the world. And thank you for being part of that hundred. I, I feel like you're in good company and you really will have a great story to share. You're welcome. I enjoyed doing it and I'm ready to dive into today's content. Okay, cool. Well, I want to start off with a background because of all the things you have accomplished. I always like to know what happened in someone's childhood that caused them to get that motivation or that that desire to become who they are later in life. So would you mind sharing that? Sure. I'll be a little graphic and hopefully it won't be offensive, but it's uh, it happens almost every second of every day. But I was born cold, scared, bloody, and attached to my mom with an umbilical cord at Hollywood Presbyterian <laughs> Hospital on March wow. 9th, uh, 1964, at 12.41 a.m. And that's what my mom told me. I don't remember it, but I suppose if I could do some regression ther- therapy, I could you know, remember it, although I don't think I want to. But I was born into an Armenian family. I was the firstborn. I have one sister. She was born about four, hun- uh, four, four and a half years later. And my father, George, my mother, Carol, we lived in Pasadena, California. And unlike a lot of other uh, American kids, I wasn't allowed to speak English in the house, uh, only outside the house where I went to, you know, American school and kindergarten and elementary school. And that's because we were of Armenian descent, and my parents wanted me to learn and speak Armenian, so I would be bilingual, you know, and it worked. And I did resist it because I wanted to be with my, you know, American friends, but there was an Armenian community in the Pasadena and Glendale area at the time, which has since exploded. Uh, That was over 50 years ago. And what happened was um, I would go to Armenian school on Saturdays when most people would take the day off. And then I'd go to Armenian church on Sundays when a lot of people would take the day off. So, like, I was going to work every single day. I had school five days a week. And I went to Armenian school on Saturday and Armenian church on Sunday. And my father was the choir director and a deacon at the church, St. Gregory Armenian Church in Pasadena. It's still there. And um, what what happened is uh, I knew what it meant to to work hard as a kid, as a four-year-old, because I felt as though I was doing more stuff than others and I was resisting it. But something happened at the church that changed the trajectory of my life. And that is, my parents, again, forced me, not it was forcing me then, but now I look back and I'm grateful for it, but they forced me to learn and recite Armenian poetry. Now, the Armenian language, um, you probably heard of uh, Armenians as a, as a race or as a culture, but the language is very different than, than English or Latin, a completely different set of characters. Um, it would resemble Russian, but it's not Russian, the the characters would, and it's read from left to right, but, you know, it takes a lot of effort to read it, and so I learned classical Armenian poetry from the ancient Armenian poets back in, I don't know, many centuries, and these poems were like 15 minutes long, and my my dad and my mom would um, have me recite it stanza by stanza at the breakfast table in our little home at uh, Oak Knoll Avenue in Pasadena, uh, and then at dinner time, right? So <laughs> I couldn't even eat without, you know, studying. And so I was part of this ecosystem with my family, and, you know, they met well, and I started reciting in public 
in front of the entire church congregation. Eventually, it was in front of hundreds of people, mostly little old Armenian women with blue hair who were widows, and they really appreciated it, and they'd come and pinch my cheek, and usually one side of my face was pinker than the other. So that was my life up until like nine years of my life, and so I, I learned how to memorize speeches. And I learned how to do it in another language, and not only Armenian, but classical Armenian, which is like, like Mandarin. It's really hard to learn. <laughs> so that was my public speaking beginnings. And if it weren't for that, and if it weren't for the reactions I saw on the people's faces, and I didn't know really what I was saying, but I knew when to inject my tone and go up and go down. And, you know, I'd play with the audience, and if, uh, I, I would experiment, <laughs> you know, and I noticed that some, some um, uh, ways that I would say certain words would have more of an impact, and I was a four-year-old, four-and-a-half years old, and then eventually five and six. It became less cute when I was eight, because I was getting older, my voice was changing. So, you know, that was, that was my life early on, and then um, I decided that, you know, I've been, I've been uh, doing this intellectual stuff for a while. I want to be an athlete, because I, I, I found myself uh, being athletic, even as a young kid at nine years old. And so I, I was a swimmer, and I, I swam competitively, and I ended up becoming a triathlete, you know, through high school. I went to Loyola High School in L.A., which is a Jesuit college and, or high school, and my, my mom would, we would do carpool, you know, with a bunch of kids in Pasadena to go there. And what I learned at that high school, and I'm not Catholic, but what the, what the Jesuits were teachers, what they taught me is that the consummate person, um, in this case, man, it was an all-boys school, is the perfect athlete and the perfect student. So... I continued that, you know, academic and athletic, and I, I became a national class triathlete where I was competing in my age group and, and winning or placing the top five. And then uh, eventually I um, became a professional cyclist because for whatever reason I was, a I was a great cyclist compared to the swimming and the running, which was triathlons. And I went to UC Irvine, which is in Southern California in Newport Beach area. I got a degree in psychology, a degree in um, economics, and I got out, and that beautiful life, it was almost like Disneyland um, every week, uh, came to a halt when I convinced my parents to buy a franchise called Polar Frozen Yogurt. It was a frozen yogurt and bakery in Long Beach, California, again in Southern California. It was the flagship store. I knew nothing about frozen yogurt. I knew nothing about the franchise. I just assumed everyone was honest. They weren't. And after 18 months, I was watching someone selling my equipment on the other side of the counter, which was the SBA um, auctioneer, because I had an SBA loan, and my mom had taken a second lien on her home, and it was going into foreclosure, and the Small Business Administration was foreclosing her home. And in 18 months, I went from the pinnacle to the pit contemplating suicide at age 25. So that was not good. And then fast forward about six months, it's 1989, and I now have to move home. I'm broke. I have no money. I'm $242,000 in debt. It was like a roller coaster, you know, like all the way up and all the way down, right? But it didn't only go down. It went underground. <laughs> you know? Right. And so I'm just, I don't want to even be breathing at this point because um, money can, uh, debt can be suffocating, you know, even though 
Um, it's an outer game. Uh, it had so much pressure on me. I was not, um, I was not built. I had not done the work yet to, to know how to handle, you know, the inner and outer game of life. And so I did eventually, but, um, I, I stopped at a, at a park, uh, which was my interview for the book. I stopped at a park called MacArthur Park on the way home because I had to move back to my mom's house. I had nowhere to live except out of my car. I didn't have money to eat. She had an income, but she couldn't pay off the loan that she had put up on, and I felt horrible. I, I lost all my grandparents' money they'd, they'd given me. Not, not a lot, but 242000 in debt is a lot for a 25-year-old without any, uh, you know, any source of income. And so uh, I didn't want to move home with mom because I thought, man, uh, my friends aren't doing this. I don't want them to know what happened. Like, I hid all of this from them, of course, because I was ashamed which is a worthless emotion, but back then it was just an emotion that I felt. I felt of course, I felt guilty, which is another worthless emotion, which I later learned. And I'm, I'm sitting on a park bench, and on that park bench, again, there was another shift that would shift my life into business and marketing forever, and that was watching an elderly woman feed pigeons. And she wanted them to feed from the palm of her hand. She would walk towards them. They would walk away. She would walk away from them. They would walk towards her because she would show the bait, or we'll call it the lead magnet. Now, she wasn't too firm and she, too aggressive, because otherwise they'd fly away. And she wasn't too passive, she'd always show them the bait. So let's just say she had this autoresponder saying, hey, are you sure? Are you sure? Here it is. And finally, she got on, down to one knee. And she was a little heavy set, so it looked uncomfortable for her to do it, but she wanted that experience. And finally, one pigeon came to the palm of her hand, fed from her hand, all the other pigeons followed. That was the front end. The back end was the next day. I was still there. All the pigeons remembered her, and they were feeding from her hand, pooping on her, you know, hat. She wore, like, this little hat right out of Mary Poppins, you know, feed, feed the birds, you know, tuck in the bag, if you know the movie. And uh, in, in Armenian tradition, pooping on your, on your head is good luck from pigeons, but I, I don't care for it. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I see a young kid who wants the same experience, and it's summertime. You know, I'd love to say it was snowing, it was horrible, I was freezing, but it was comfortable. It's Los Angeles, it's summer, it's about 85 degrees. This young kid wants to beat the hand relationship with the pigeons. I mean, who wouldn't? This, this lady's getting all this attention, but they're not going to anywhere else. She's the prime marketer because she went through the dance of back and forth, back and forth, until they fell from her hand, and then they remembered her, like any marketer or business owner if you maintain trust. And so the kid ran, you know, he got like, it was a nickel back then, if you, that's how old it is. It was a little bird feeder that kind of looks like what you put in jelly, uh, jelly beans these days, and you turn that little handle and they fall out to the palm of your hand. This was bird seed. So he did that. He asked his mom for a nickel. He ran at the pigeons. They, they flew away. He got pissed. He threw his bird seed at the pigeons. He didn't even notice the seed landed on the ground and all the pigeons were feeding from the ground. But the bottom line is he never had the beat-to-hand relationship, yet he could have. And so what I learned from that many years later, I'm still depressed and suicidal at the time, so I moved home with my mom. I lived there for about three and a half years, and then another shift happens, which we can talk at another time. But what I learned there is all about marketing. It's relationships. It's not business-to-business business or business-to-consumer or business-to-government or business-to-patient. It's H to H. It's human to human. In this case, it was woman to pigeon. <laughs> but with humans, if you maintain that evolution of getting them to know you and like you and trust you, getting them to understand and believe in you, and it's the right time, 
in this case they're hungry, then you got them. It's not just knowing, liking, and trusting. They have to understand you. They got to believe you, and it's got to be the right time. There are really six barriers that get in the way. People only teach three. So I use that as a central metaphor as my origin story. I gave you the six-minute version. I usually tell the 15-minute version on stage and then keep coming back to it. And that has marked the biggest trajectory and inflection point of my life, uh, starving, broke, and on the park bench at MacArthur Park in 1989. And you'd mentioned the, the three. What are the six? Well, everyone knows. Uh, I think network marketing has made it very uh, prevalent. But uh, you got to get someone to know you, like you, and trust you. And liking you, if you go back to Robert Cialdini and his book Influence, it's not really them liking you. they got to know that you like them. So liking has been misinterpreted. So those are the three, know, like, and trust. But then they also have to understand you. they got to understand what your offer is, what you're selling. They have to believe that what you're saying is true. They can, they can understand you, but they may not believe you. And that usually is the biggest barrier. And then the one that is the only one of the six, you're, you're only 17% is out of your control. 83% is in your control. You know, which is a, a B, you know, so it's the, the, the scale is tipped in your, in your favor, which is that one, that 17%, the one out of six is, um, it's, uh, it's got to be the right time. So if it's not the right time, I had my good friend in college, Jimmy DeVito, he started work very early because his father sold insurance. He's trying to sell me a $5 million uh, life insurance policy. As a 23-year-old college kid, right? <laughs> what do I need that for? Mm-hmm. I don't have a family. I'm not going to leave it to anybody, you know? So fast forward, fast forward 10 years, and I bought it from him. So it wasn't the right time. So when I'm approaching someone, the first thing I focus on is, is it the right time? With a seminar, a workshop, with this interview, the first thing we focus on is time. When is mm-hmm. it? Because if you have a conflict, if you have another appointment, if you have a wedding that you're going to, or there's something else that has more priority at the time because you've made a bigger commitment, then it doesn't matter what's being offered. Timing does not work. Timing is everything. If you're married, you know it's true. If you're divorced, you know it's true. If you have kids, you know it's true. Timing is everything. So I go after when, you know, the right time. And then the second thing, if it's a workshop or a physical thing, uh, where they have to be present, appointment marketing is... Where? Where is it going to be? This happens to be me calling in. You're in Seattle. I don't know where Andrew is. I'm in the uh, Corte Madero, California, which is in Marin, just like six miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge in the San Francisco Bay Area. Beautiful day. And so um, the where is not as relevant when we do it virtually, but it is when we do it physically, such as when we met in Las Vegas not long ago, and this whole thing started. So... The when and the where is important for timing, but also, you know, timing in their life. So I always go after the, is it the right time? When would be the right time? Because I don't make an offer unless I know it's good timing. Then I focus on understanding me and believing me, knowing me, liking me, trusting me. Whereas most people focus on no like, trust, and they don't bother about timing, and then they get rejected after talking to someone for 30 minutes. I know after five minutes if it's the right time, just through a sequence of Socratic questions. So I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but I think it's an important one. 
Well, I think it is too. I did want to uh, talk a little bit, or I guess respond a little bit to your story earlier. Uh, first of all, the we have the cards, the key smiling cards in 24 languages and Armenian is one of the ones that were was chosen. And I have to say when we meet people that are Armenian, we show that show, uh, the card, they really light up. But I've just noticed that that culture seems to be a very hospitable culture. They're they're very friendly and they they just treat you so well. And I agree with you with the hard working component. Is that is that kind of your experience that most Armenians are successful oh, because yeah. they have a work at that is I'll t- I'll tell you, I live in California, so the closest culture Armenians would be with is with Mexican Americans. Um, my experience has been living in California, very hardworking, and they live together. So it's not uncommon in a Mexican American or Armenian household, and some Middle Eastern households as well, um, where you have even like Persian American, where they have the grandparent, the parent, and the kids living in the same house. So they'll, they'll do it not only to save money, but they do it because they honor the, the elderly. A, a few things that the West, Western culture don't honor like they do in the Far East, and I teach in the East, so I know. And I'm talking India, Asia, and other parts, not just the Middle East. But they honor uh, the elderly. They don't put them in an old folks home. They, they live with them. They take care of them, right? So I'm right. not saying that the, the West doesn't do that, but, you know, I just see more honor toward the elderly. They don't make them irrelevant. You know, think of the, um, the American Indian chief, right? Regardless, even if they have Parkinson's disease, right, they still are the top of the food chain in the tribe. And then also, uh, I think, with uh, teachers. Um, here are the teachers. My mom's a teacher over 50 years. My sister's a teacher. My dad was a teacher. My, my brother-in-law is a teacher. I, I come from a lineage of teachers. I think both grandparents from both sides were teachers. And so I teach. Uh, I'm the only one who's ever made a million dollars in my entire family, both sides, which they still want me to get a job. But I think it's because I haven't taught students. I've taught other teachers, in this case, other Internet marketing teachers, who the students have become my teachers. You know, Ryan Dice and Russell Brunson and Bishop Lakani and I can... It's depressing. The list will go on and on. Stuart McLaren. <laughs> it just goes, Steve McLaren, it just goes on and on. So um, it, I, I used to, you know, get frustrated with it, but then one of my mentors said, hey, man, that's the greatest honor anyone could ever pay you. You keep your student becomes a teacher. So that's the way I've, I've looked at it is you know, honoring my teachers and now who used to be my students and my teachers who were still my teachers and then honoring the elderly, so you know, not treating them like dinosaurs. That's more far, far East uh, culture. But within the Armenian culture, it's, it's much like Mexican-American. They'll live together in the same household, and they'll... It's funny because the kids grow up faster. Like, if you go to mm-hmm. a school that has predominantly Armenians, which in this case is Glendale, California, it is hysterical. You see these five- and six-year-olds talking like adults because they're so used to modeling their grandparents... <laughs> <laughs> like you do a double take, like what are these guys midgets or something? I mean, they're hysterical. They're like swearing at each other and they're talking to each other as if they're like fifty and sixty years old. So it's pretty funny and entertaining if you understand the language. Awesome! And you just recently did the Keep Smiling template, which is a who, why, how, and in hearing your story and the disaster and failure that you encountered at age twenty-five and the result of it making you feel defeated and 
uh, even suicidal. What do you think about that template with regard to uh, the theory of the bigger your who is, the more you had to overcome in life, the bigger your why is and your impact? Well, a lot of people say the bigger the why, the easier the how. And Jim Rowan said that, great philosopher, and he was a mentor when he was living, and I still think he's listening. Um, but I think that, um, that you know, it, your, your belief in who you want to become um, is even more important than why you want to become that thing. So, I, you know, who, why, and how, I think, is uh, not to... Uh, violate any of, uh, or, or, or run against any of uh, uh, Jim's uh, teachings, I, I think the most important thing is, you know, who uh, you want to become will determine, you know, why you want to become that thing, and then, and then the how usually takes people out, because that's the strategy. So you're going to change strategy more than you're going to change the who and the why. In my, in my experience... Um, the who and the why stay the same. You know, your intention and, and your purpose stays the same, but the strategy changes. A strategy for a massage therapist at $100,000 a year, if they make that, is different than at 300000 They can't do massages to create 300000 unless they're working with celebrities who are paying outrageous fees. And then if they want to make a million bucks, then they have to be in the business of massage where other people are doing massage for them. And then ultimately, like a massage envy, which is a chain that we have here in California and I think other states, that's where you're in the, in the millions and that's where you have other massage therapists working for you, but you stop doing massage. So your strategy has to change, but the who and the why doesn't. That is, those two are usually immutable. But the problem is many people change their who and they change the why because the strategy's not working and what they don't understand is it's natural for the strategy to change. A strategy for $10 million business is different than a $1 million business. A strategy for a $300 million business is different than a $30 million business. And it's really difficult to bring someone who makes a billion dollars and is a chief marketing officer for a billion-dollar company and bring them even to a $30 million company. Because the who that they became at at a billion it's going to be so different than at the $30 million. They may not have been at the $30 million range to know the evolution it takes, like the young kid who didn't see what the elderly woman did at MacArthur Park. He didn't see, I'm guessing, he didn't see the evolution of what she went through. He just saw the result. So sure, we want to make the million dollars or $10 million a year, whatever the goal is, but you don't see what they had to go through to get there. You don't see how Bill Gates slept under his desk for two years of his life and struggled. You don't see what uh, Steve Jobs went through when he got fired from Apple from someone he hired in the first place. He was the chief marketing officer of a multi-billion dollar company, by the way. You don't see all the trials and tribulations of people, but Oprah Winfrey got fired from her job, or J.K. Rowling, who was told by her parents as a single mom with his child sleeping on her lap, writing her first Harry Potter book, that hey, this is not going to work. I mean, who do you think you are writing a novel? Well, her who was big enough, and her why was big enough, so that the how became possible, and she became a billionaire. So I think the misunderstanding of uh, changing the who and the why, many people don't even talk about the who, uh, I think 
keeping the who and the why and being crystal clear. And the easiest way to know who you want to become is find people you admire and respect. And what are, what are um, the characteristics of what you admire and respect about them? And that ends up becoming your purpose in life. Yeah. Just find three people who you know and know you, right? And three people who you know, but they don't know you. And they could be people who have been deceased for many years. They can even be methodical characters. But if you identify characteristics you respect and admire about them, uh, and this is what we call the purpose in life uh, exercise, I can do it in 10 minutes with people on a napkin. You know, you have to go through a three-day seminar <laughs> for this or, you know, a 10-day course. And so I, I think that the misunderstanding, uh, in, with my students anyway, and I deal with a lot in emerging nations, it's not about strategy. It's about who you want to become and why you want to become that. And if they're in alignment, don't change it. Keep those two things immutable, unchanging, and then change your strategy as you grow. That's great advice. I wanted to actually address uh, that suicidal aspect of your life because that's had to give you a skew on how precious life is. And you had commented when we were at an airport one time that the biggest gift and that you've had is someone that actually is passing and they want to share their passing thoughts with you. Did you want to comment on that? Sure. Well, I've been, um, I've been privy, meaning I've had the ability to be next to people in their, in their dying days. Right. And I mean like dying that day or the next day. And one of my mentors, um, I wasn't, I wasn't next to him, but my best friend was, and I said, God, Pat, what did he say? And I'm not going to mention who it is, but very well-known guy um, who really launched the whole self-esteem industry. Very well-known, very well-read, and very prolific writer, and historically significant. And um, he's in his 90s, he's on his deathbed, my friend Patrick uh, was next to him, and he asked. And the answer was, uh, I wish I would have had more um, planned leisure. Planned leisure. So what does that mean? Well, I wish I would have planned my leisure and not just worked and worked because uh, I don't get to a new source of wealth. I get to a new level of poverty, right? There's always someone else to compare to. You know, a millionaire can compare to a multimillionaire, and a multimillionaire can compare to a multi uh, to a billionaire, and a billionaire can compare, compare to a multi-billionaire. I had a an acquaintance. I wouldn't call him a friend, but he was a billionaire. I think he was worth four and a half billion. He lost three or four. He lost three of it, and he committed suicide. He had, he had, a, he had a billion left, <laughs> and he committed suicide. So there was something wrong with the who. And the why. Now, I understand what those feelings are, and I know what it is to think the unthinkable and speak the unspeakable, but I don't know what it is to do the undoable because you can't undo that. And so right. leaving a family behind is rough. And so that's, that's one piece of advice is plan leisure. Um, the others, and I've heard this from hospice workers working with people, because, you know, when people are about to die, they tell you the truth, right? So they're usually... Um, and it's, it's been uh, articulated and written about. There are five regrets that people have, but there's really two different types of regrets with people about to die. And the first regret is 
man, I wish I hadn't done that thing. It could have been doing something with one of your children, whatever it is, it was unacceptable to you, or with, a, with an ex-spouse, or with a spouse, or with a business, or with coworkers, or whatever. You regret doing something that if you had to do a do-over, you wouldn't have done it. You know, for me, I wish I hadn't said certain things to certain people, right? And in some cases, I don't have a relationship with them because of what I said, and it only took about 300 seconds. That's all it took, right? And in many cases, in one case, it cost me a lot of money, and it, it severed a friendship. So that, those were like uh, regret I would have. But that regret, you know, what you did, doesn't even hold a candle <laughs> to what you didn't do. And the re- regret of not doing something is the regret of not living into the possibility or to your full potential, into your who, that a lot of people don't talk about, right? And so, uh, for me, I usually, uh, I push the envelope or, you know, I take a, a bigger risk of doing things that, that scare me. And so a friend of mine, uh, uh, Darren Hardy, uh, he's been the publisher of Success Magazine. He has a Darren Daily, which is a, a great short piece that goes out five days a week. And uh, he's an author, too. Really well-read. Young, but has met a lot of thought leaders. So he knows a lot of people who know him, and he's very clear on who he wants to become. Uh, and Jim Rohn was, his, um, was one of his mentors. So he and I have a lot of uh, affinity because we think similarly, and he's quite successful, right? And so I, I was listening to him one time, and he said, you know, scary work pays well. And he had heard that from someone else. And I thought to myself, you know what, that's true. If I do something that scares everybody else and approach someone who other people are straight are afraid to approach, but do it in a way that's not going to make a fool out of me, do it in a way that you know, may create a lifelong friendship or at least some sort of business relationship, that would be cool. So I came up with this idea of creating scare cards. Scare cards. And scare cards are index cards where... I usually write someone's name. It usually is a who. Um, because, you know, I have the, the chance of being embarrassed, right? Or potentially offended or humiliated. You know, whatever emotion you can attach to that. You know, we have feelings, and so uh, that's the scary part, right? I don't want to be rejected or whatever, right? So I write down the person's name, and I do it in, um, like, felt it, and, and then I put a, a different color, on the north and south south side of it. And I put it on a little... I'm looking at mine right now. I'm not going to say whose name is on it. But um, I put it on this little uh, clip. Uh, and it's a piece of wire that is firm, so it kind of stands up. And it's right there at, in my, my home desk. I just have a little corner if I need to do extra work. And I put it there so I can see it. And other people get to see it, too. My kids see it. And I go, hey, who's this person? So then I tell them. And so, you know, the funny thing is, Everyone came out naked, cold, bloody, and hopefully attached to their mother, <laughs> right? Everyone <laughs> came out the same way. We've just done different things with the 86,400 seconds a day or the 1,440 minutes a day or the 168 hours a week or the 52 weeks a year. We, just, we haven't created more time. We haven't managed time. We've managed the actions within the time that we have, right? So... Um, on the front, I put the name. On the back, 
I put down the reason why I'm scared to reach out to them, right? That's it. So who and then why? And then um, I just come up with strategies. You can see where I'm going with this, you know, who, why, how. I come up with strategies how to reach out to them. And usually it's reaching out to someone else who knows them to get some kind of referral or, hey, Alex is a good guy or hopefully it's not someone I offended. (laughs) And so... Um, I don't go through one card a day. Sometimes it takes a week. The one I'm looking at is taking about 10 days, uh, and it's getting irritating because I, I won't take it down until I've done it. But then I have this whole stack of names uh, that I have a little paperweight on, and I, I look at the front, and I know these people now. I look at the back, and that's what, uh, that's what scared me to reach out to them, right? And I don't feel vulnerable saying this because now I teach it to my students. And I ask them, what's the, what's the most valuable thing you've learned? And they go, scare cards. We love the scare cards. <laughs> so you collect these, right? And over time, you, you look at all the breakthroughs you've had. You looked at the, the unsupported beliefs, which were the reasons why I'm the back of each scare card. <clears throat> and then these people are friends with you. I've even shown some of the people, you know, the back. And they felt that it was an honor for me to do that. That they were one person wept. And he was mad. <laughs> and he mm. goes, you're kidding. And this was like maybe eight months ago. I go, no. You know, I teach this now. She goes, why did you think that? I said, I don't know. Blame my parents. You know, childhood upbringing. Who knows? <laughs> That's not my business. But my business is now we're doing business together. And, you know, we, we made it work. And I, I met him through another friend who knew him. So there, that's putting the, the who, why, and how strategy into impact. Well, Alex, thank you for elaborating on that. I will say that we have, I think, under 15 minutes of the showtime left. So I wanted to uh, yield and give Andrea an opportunity to ask a question that she wanted to ask. And then we're going to go into rapid fire. And that is an opportunity for the guests to learn the books and quotes and movies and things that basically caused you to be inspired to do what you do. So we'll go ahead. Andrea, go ahead. Well, uh, given the time that there is left, Alex, so I I request that you make this in uh, brevity for me. So can you give a really short synopsis on your method of conversion? Yeah, the first thing I do is I I find out what type of persona they are. And so we take them through an assessment, and they usually come up in one of four different personas. And it's about how fast they make decisions and how they make decisions. They make decisions logical and fast. They make decisions emotional and fast. They make decisions emotional and slow and logical and slow. And so in those four different ways, and this is from the Myers-Briggs, it's a light version of Myers-Briggs, which goes back many years, back to Carl Jung, I speak to those people in the way they want to be spoken, and we typically have good conversion through the Socratic process like that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, since you are a person that has a lot of wisdom in the area of not just marketing, but the marketing being a successful uh, sales cycle, I know you have looked a little bit at the Key Smiling movement, and it's certainly not a model that probably resembles any business model, but what advice would you give us or uh, anyone that is creating a movement that is the intention is to better the world. Okay. Um, I have some great feedback for you guys. So um, 
what you have is a great tool to take pictures and of thought leaders in the middle of an event where you're taking pictures anyway, so you're kind of like getting paid to have people watch you work, right? And so when you're taking the pictures with those cards, then what I would do is not only have them take the picture, but seed, you know, don't sell, but seed a little bit of, of, about what this movement is and what significance that picture is going to have so that people get a frame of reference for taking a picture that's not just a picture at an irrelevant event to your cause, but let them know that, hey, there's another movement happening here, and I wonder if we could take 60 seconds um, for you to be part of it. And then while they're holding it and you're, you're focusing on the camera, why don't you focus maybe for 10 seconds more and pretend like you're not as good as you are, and then talk to them and let them know. Plant the seed in their heart of what this movement is all about so that they can create a question or it can espouse a question and they can ask you more. Now you got a dialogue going instead of doing monologue. That's what I would recommend because it's a great opportunity. It's physical. You're there. You're taking a picture of them. And if they have in their mind a context of where this is going and why this is happening, then I think they'll get a lot more excited about it and you'll have less work to do. Fantastic. So we're going to go to rapid fire. And I, the reason we do this part of the show is we find that uh, when people actually share what they've brought into their uh, brains and into their thoughts and programming, that we're, if we copy that, we're going to have just that much more success in our life. So uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing a book or two that you read and changed your life. Uh, the one thing. The one thing, I think it's the best book in the world to focus on the one thing that's really good for you. Uh, the best book I can think of for finding your own success is called Born to Win. Uh, the one thing is written by uh, J- Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. Uh, Born to Win is written by Zig Ziglar and Tom Ziglar. And um, that's more about your own personal development. Um, and then one of my favorite books by Robert Greene is called The 48 Laws of Power. And that's a book you read for life. Um, he's a great writer, and he goes back into history and shows these methods of power. Some people would call it manipulation, but if you learned it, then you know not to get manipulated <laughs> by other people. And that's a very, very important uh, piece so that you can at least defend yourself when you need to. And then the final book I would... Um, recommend it's a, it's a short book, but it's from one of my mentors, Max Dupree. He used to run Herman Miller, the CEO, former CEO. Uh, leadership is an art. Leadership is an art. Um, great book, just general leadership that is very easy to read and very easy to consume, and most importantly, very easy to apply. All right. Part B is uh, you didn't mention any of your books, so. Would you mind sharing how many you've written and uh, one that may help people? Well, I'm, I'm a curriculum uh, creator, not, a, not an author. Um, but okay. I was told by my good friend, uh, Tucker Knox, he says, Alex, you've got to be an author. You're playing small unless you are an author. I said, okay, fine. So I have a <laughs> book called Alexisms, which is 25 years of my sayings that I've said on stage and on the virtual platform. And it can be read in 25 minutes, according to my mother, Carol. So, and that's uh, available on Amazon? Get it at, yeah, it's available on Amazon. You can go get it on Amazon. And the book I'm currently writing is called um, uh, What's Your Verb? 
and uh, you've seen my talk on the verb. I think yes. your verb is amplify. And um, I'm writing that book, and I'm really enjoying writing it with all the case studies. And it's been a speech I've been delivering for about 10 years. And again, with the scribe media and the scribe method, again, Tucker Max and uh, Jacques Obron, they run a great company out in, uh, uh, in Austin, Texas. Uh, they, they've been encouraging me you know, to write the book, so I went through their, their guided author workshop, and I'm in the process of, of writing it. I'm about halfway done, so I'm looking forward to becoming a fee-paid speaker for a change and, and have that book as the, the backdrop. Well, if we do have a little more time, we may revisit this, but I, I love that activity at the Mastermind, and uh, it, it is so vital that you actually know the verb and that people actually know the verb that you are so that you can actually work with them. So, Andrea, go ahead. Alex, could you tell me the song that gets you lifted and motivated? Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, oh, my... My favorite song um, that I wake up to is a Michael Jackson song. Uh, and the reason I play it is uh, there's too much information, but as I'm out of the shower and I'm getting ready for a, a full day event, and I'm talking from 8 a.m. to 10.30 p.m., and it's a five-day event, um, I dance naked to that song. And one time someone saw me from across the way in a hotel at the Westin in Los Angeles, and I tell the whole story about that, and they were at the event. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> a couple together. <laughs> so it's like Ma and Pa, you know, with the picture with the pitchfork and all that, that they, uh, they were at the event. Front row. And the guy was putting a thumbs up like, thanks, dude, I got, you know, I got lucky this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And uh, staying on that uh, theme of inspiration, uh, a movie that uh, you recommend to friends that need inspiration or two? You know, I, I love loyalty uh, movies. So uh, like uh, movies like Gladiator or Braveheart or English Patient. I, w I would have to say uh, my favorite movie of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. That is an amazing movie. Yeah. One that you never get tired of seeing again and again, too. All right, yeah, Andrea? it's one of those. Yeah, for sure. Um, Alex, if you had a superhero power, what would it be? To read people's minds. Mm. <laughs> it would probably depress me and make me happy at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Since you've met so many amazing people, I guess one question is, who was someone you met that was amazing and what did you learn from them? And or, if you'd like to add this, someone you still want to meet. I met the Dalai Lama. Um, I didn't get a chance to you know, have a discussion with him. Uh, and I will have a chance to, uh, while he's still living, to, to go up to northern India and meet with him. So I have a few questions for him. I, I've loved his teachings over the years. And um, what I've, you know, I've enjoyed the teaching of compassion and how compassion, uh, you know, sometimes it has a woo-woo component to it in business circles, but it has three words. It has compass, which is direction, passion, which is the heart of going in that direction, and then ion, you know, the last three letters, that's, that the, you got to be that way at the granular level, you know, to be a true leader. Compassion, three words inside. So it's kind of, it's kind of neat, and I, I'd want to share that with him. Hmm. Okay, Andre. 
Well, um, I, I'm going to pass on mine because I want you to ask what else you want to ask because I'd love to hear more about his um, verb conversation. That's a that's a good point. So I'll I'll just finish the uh, the rapid fire with this question then. Uh, a quote that you live by. Um, the greatest this is by Socrates. Uh, the greatest way to live with honor in this world is to be the person you pretend to be. <laughs> I.e., the value of perception campaigns that are uh, backed with reality, right? Dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right, uh, so Andrea wanted to revisit, and so did I. Um, so, Andrea, if you want to just uh, address that question. Uh, yeah, so, you know, what is your verb? <laughs> Alex, if you'll share yours with us and, and tell us how that uh, sure. works with you. We've only got about three minutes, so keep it short. <laughs> yeah, I, after doing a lot of research, I, I've discovered that everyone has a verb deep inside them wanting to make its way out. And uh, people can do self-assessment, they can do personal development, human potential courses, but a verb is a one-word language that tells everyone who you are, why you're here, and who you're going to become. And so my verb is engage. And the format is, I, I borrowed from Rene Descartes, who was a mathematician and a philosopher, Frenchman. Um, he said, I think, therefore I am. That's his verb, right? Uh, my verb is, I engage. I engage, therefore I am. You can live as a noun and bore people, you can live as an adjective and please people, or you can live as a verb and move people. So if you look at some of the great thought leaders you know, in history, then they lived as verbs. Amelia Earhart, I fly, therefore I am. Um, you have uh, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Albert Einstein, I learn, therefore I am. He said, if you're not learning, you're dying. And so I give a lot of examples uh, Steve Jobs, I innovate, therefore I am. J.K. Rowling, I persist, therefore I am. And so I go through a bunch of slides and, and thought leaders in the past, and I think that they lived into their verbs. So that's less than three minutes. Andrea, what's your book? Well, we, we toyed with that one back and forth. Um, <laughs> I still have never decided on one that I like. What was the right. one that you had told and, me and about? That's that? why I asked. That's why I asked, because until you decide on a verb, you can't go in that direction, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to give a gift, because my talk is public domain. The book will be copywritten. The talk is public domain, and I did that deliberately, because uh, I noticed that P.T. Barnum did that with his biography, <laughs> and he gave it to a bunch of publishers and the rest is history. So I, I want to have this talk delivered over a million times, and I know I can't do it. And so if you go to discoveryourverb.com, discoveryourverb.com, you'll see the 45-minute version, the 30-minute version, the 10-minute version, the 5-minute version I did at Harvard Faculty Club. I'm going to do a 10-minute version at Carnegie Hall in September. Um, and... Uh, I have the notes, I have the slides, and it's yours to deliver. Most people don't believe it, so they don't do it. But, um, you know, the only, the, the only um, condition is not to give me credit for it because then you don't deliver it with the level of passion that you deserve to. So you can practice it, you can watch my versions, and all my, my speaking notes are there. And it, that's what I do every time I give the talk so that people can do it within their companies, within their families. It's the easiest thing to teach someone. And, Andy, I'm going to challenge you to decide today. Because you can change your verb, right? 
but choose one so at least you're moving in that direction and you're not going to zigzag back and forth. All right. Well, Alex, so if I thank go you. from my heart, I, it's actually, I love. Andrea? Oh, love? Yes, okay. Go ahead. I was going to say we're in wrap up. So, Alex, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. And it certainly has been enlightening. How do people follow you, connect with you? Oh, you know, the easiest way is, um, and the least expensive way, is 25 years of my know-how into 25 minutes a week. And that's my podcast. So if you go to allsellingaside.com, you'll get the notes and you'll get each podcast episode. comes out every single week. You can, uh, if you have an iPhone, you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you have an Android phone, you can go to Stitcher. It's allsellingaside.com forward slash iTunes or allsellingaside.com forward slash Stitcher. But just go to allsellingaside.com and you can get access to the audio and to the notes there. Um, that's really my legacy. Instead of writing a book, I decided that I love audio. People can listen to when they're driving in traffic and when they want to read the notes when they have time and they're in front of a the computer, they can do it then. Awesome. Well, Alex, you've been amplified. It has been a pleasure talking with you. This show has been brought to you by Voice America Influencer Channel, uh, the Red Carpet Connection, Big uh, Events USA, and of course, the Q Smiling Movement. We'll see you next week. This is Ken Roshan on Amplified. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashad again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, go get your message heard.